0: I invite you to take your Bible again and turn to Luke chapter 1, uh, that same passage that was read to us. As I said a little earlier, we are studying the songs of Advent, and Advent is just a word that means arrival. It's referring to the arrival of Christ. Now, the old uh, traditional way in which these songs were named was just by taking the very first Latin word in the old Latin translation called the Vulgate and uh, just calling that, making that word the name of the song. So that's why Mary's song that we studied last week is called the Magnificat, because Magnificat is the Latin word meaning to magnify. And she is saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. That is, I'm making a big deal out of God. And the first word in the old Latin translation of Zechariah's song is the word Benedictus, which simply means blessed. Actually, it's a little more nuanced in the Latin and in the Greek behind the Latin. It combines two words, one meaning good and the other meaning to say something, and it really means this, to say something really good about somebody. So when Zechariah begins this song, really what he's doing is saying this, God deserves the very best things anybody can possibly say about Him. That's the that's fuller meaning of this word, blessed. It means God deserves the very best things that could be said about Him. In fact, the, the, the very fact that this word is the beginning of this whole uh, song uh, means that it's meant to kind of explode off our lips. Like typically we say to something, God is blessed, but this reverses it. It puts the blessing at the beginning. It's almost a way of saying lead with the fact that God deserves the very best words that we can possibly give Him. And so this is a song of blessing, the Benedictus and we are gonna, uh, we're going to pa- unpack it to discover what it means. Why does God deserve to have the very best things said about Him? Why does God deserve our praise? See, if, if last week when we focused on Mary's song, we talked a lot about the meaning of praise. What does it mean to magnify the Lord? This week, we're going to focus more on why God deserves our praise. What has He done that is so big, so important, that we really ought to say the very best things about God. Now, I'm going to give you some context because some of you may be like, Zechariah, you're going to have to remind me about who that was. Totally understandable. We're going to talk about some context. Uh, So if you look at the verses prior to this song, look at verse uh, 63, actually. Uh, This is Zechariah. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote his name is John. I'll tell you why in just a moment. And they all wondered, okay? That word wondered means they're trying to figure out what's going on, right? That that whole idea of wondering, trying to figure out what's going on, that happened around the birth of Christ 2,000 years ago, and it continues to happen today. 2,000 years later, people are still wondering, what's going on with Christmas? What is this all about? I'll give you an example. Right down the street from my house, I pass another house that has a little shed out front. Now, inside that shed, most sheds like that that you see here in New England, there's, they're wood sheds. They have, like, they're wood stacked in it. Instead of wood stacked in this little shed, there's little statues of, there's three people. There's a man and a woman, they're wearing robes, and there's this little baby uh, in a what looks like a rustic crib with hay in it. Okay. And as I describe that to you, none of you are, are saying, what in the world is that? You know what that is. It's what we call a manger scene. In fact, you know the names of the people that are depicted by those statues. You're like, of course, that's Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus. Now, listen carefully. The very fact that almost anybody in this country can name the people that are depicted by those statues and their baby in itself is astonishing. Why would you know the names of two peasant, peasants from 2,000 years ago who lived in a, in a province called Judea in the outer regions of the Roman Empire? Why would you even know their names? They're like, well, because their, their son became very famous. Well, well, think about this. He didn't start any branch of philosophy. He didn't even write any books. He, he didn't He wasn't an emperor or anything he wasn't even a general he didn't even raise any armies he didn't he didn't discover any new laws of science he didn't make any inventions so why do we know about him in fact his life ended in a way designed to make people forget about him and that he was he was crushed under the boot of the roman empire crucified to death i mean if you think about it if anybody was destined to be forgotten it was this little group of people that now two thousand years later whenever anybody has a little manger scene we know their names now that's just something to say what is going on about right we ought to wonder what's the meaning of this well the people in Zechariah's day are wondering the same thing what's going on here and Zechariah's song is an explanation of why the events of Advent are such a big deal So, just to give you some context here, Zechariah, for those of you who maybe your memory needs to be jogged here, Zechariah was an elderly priest living in uh, Judea, and he was married to an elderly woman named Elizabeth. They were never able to have any children, and now that they're elderly, they're kind of like, that ship has sailed. It's not going to happen. Now, as a priest, Zechariah was on a rotation, a, a schedule, to serve in the temple and he's, gonna, he's offering incense there in the temple of Jerusalem. So real, think of a really old guy, long white hair, robes like a Jew, just like you see in the pictures. He's there in this inner temple. He's, in, he's this incense. It's like a little metal stick with some uh, perfumes that are burning on the end to, to make this, this beautiful smell, this, uh, this, this uh, aroma. And he comes into this, this temple. He's all by himself. And suddenly somebody else is right there with him. That would be kind of freaky. And, and this person says, greetings don't fear. And he begins to say, he says, Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. What prayers? Prayers for a child. When was the last time do you think he and, he and, he and uh, Elizabeth ever prayed for a child? Well, th- it was probably, uh, probably decades ago. They probably stopped praying that prayer, like maybe in their 50s. And, and, they're, and now they're much older, and he's like, your prayers have been answered. What prayers? You're going to have a son, and you're to name him John, and this son is going to be a forerunner, kind of a trumpeter, as it were, to herald the coming of God. And, and Zechariah is thinking, all right. So his first question is, how can I know this, seeing that I'm rather elderly, and to be honest, not to give away your age, but my wife is too. How is this going to happen? How, no, he, the question specifically is, how can this happen? How, how can I know this is going to happen? And the angel says, well, my name is Gabriel, and I stand in God's presence. (laughs) And you are going to be mute for the next nine months until these things are fulfilled because you didn't believe that these these things would happen. So Zechariah comes out, and there's a crowd of people outside the temple, and they're wondering what's taking so long because all he was supposed to do was it shouldn't have taken that long. he comes out, and he can't speak, and he makes signs to them. Fast forward nine months, it's happened. They're having a naming party. This, they would do this after the birth of a child. They're having a naming party for, for their baby. Can you imagine being invited to like a party like that where you walk in and you, you meet this elderly woman and you say, oh, you must be the new mother's grandmother. I'm so sorry, you're her mother. I am the mother, she says, this is just astonishing. What in the world does this mean? And they, and they, come, they come in. They, the relatives are together. And they want to name, him Ze- they want to name the baby Zechariah after, their fa- after his father. And, and Elizabeth is saying, no, his, his name is going to be John. And they're like, what? why John? And so they ask the father. And he motions for a writing tablet, just like I referred to a few moments later. And he writes down on this tablet, his name is John. And at that moment, he could start talking again. And what he began to say were these words of praise to God. Why does God deserve the very best words? Why praise God? That's what Zechariah is doing in this song. And And I alluded to in the scripture reading, there are just two parts of this song. It's a long song, just two sentences. The first talks about what God has done, and we can put it this way, why Jesus has come, because it's talking about what God has done in sending His Son, Jesus Christ. And the second part talks about Zechariah's son, John, his role in this. Okay, what, what role is John the Baptist going to play? So here's the, the verses that I want to focus on are verses 74 and 75. Okay, all that, just what I have said, has been to give you context why this song is the, the historical background. But now here's what we're going to focus on. I want to show you how these verses, what these verses teach about, teach us about God's sending his son, Jesus, and what that shows us. Jesus' coming shows us our highest purpose, our greatest problem, and our only solution. Okay, we're going to see that from these verses. That Jesus' coming, that is the reason why God deserves our highest praise. Jesus' coming shows us our highest purpose, our greatest problem, and the only solution. So first of all, I want to show you how this teaches us about our highest purpose. So if you look at verse 74... It says, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. So everything that has come before this, in this sentence, in this song of praise, has been talking about God's promises to save His people, God raising up a horn of salvation. A horn is is symbolic of... Why? To what point? What's been the purpose of this? Well, it has been to this purpose, so that we might serve Him. Okay, so... This is what we're going to say based on this passage. Our highest purpose is to serve God. I could just see the disappointment on your face. You got into the career that you're in the crushing burden of one person trying to derive all their meaning and all their satisfaction out of that their partner so whatever is, whatever you do with all your days, it better be worth doing. It must thrill you. It must satisfy you without making you apathetic. It must comfort you without boring you. I mean, what can possibly do this? And now we believe that all our days includes not just until the day we die, but for the rest of eternity, okay? So what's, gonna wor- what's worth doing for all our days, not just the rest of our lives, but for eternity? Like what possibly can sustain your interest and your enthusiasm that long and the answer according to this passage is serving god so is it really that satisfying is it really that interesting well let's look at the meaning of this word okay if our highest purpose is to serve god and this purpose is so important it's worth doing all our days both now and eternity what is it what is serving god well we might serve him the word serve is not your typical word rendered serve in the new testament it's, it's, a, it's an unusual word for serve. So typically there's a word for serve that has the idea of doing tasks for people that need something. Uh, like let's take a king or a, a manager, for example, and he needs servants or, or stewards to come along and do things for him that he needs to be done. He needs someone to take out the trash. He needs someone to clean the stables. He needs someone to manage his finances or to manage his property. Those are, things that are tasks that are done because he has needs. But this kind of serve is not the sort of thing you do for someone because they need it. This kind of serve is something you do for someone because they deserve it. There's a big difference. It's not because God needs us to serve Him. It's because He deserves us to serve Him in this way. So the word that's rendered serve here is typically found in the context of priests doing their priestly duty. So in those days, a priest would put on a beautiful garment. It has jewels all over it, a turban that that looks like the crown worthy of a king, all to come into the presence of God. Why? Because God needs it? No, because He deserves it. He comes bringing incense like Zechariah did. He makes a sacrifice. Why? Because God needs it? No, because God deserves it. In fact, the, the background, the Old Testament background for this word rendered serve comes from Exodus chapter 7 and verse 14, where Moses stands before Pharaoh, who has enslaved the people of Israel, and says, let my people go. God says, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. So this is a priestly kind of service. The the best way I can illustrate this is what a young man might do for a girl that he falls in love with. So he falls in love with this girl, and she doesn't really need anything that he could give her, but he really thinks she deserves a lot. And so he decides, you know, I'm going to write her a poem And put it to music and sing it to her so he works really hard he writes this poem it's beautiful it's heartfelt it's sincere he gets his guitar he kind of composed a little tune and he sings it to her and let's say it's pretty good okay let's say this is a good a good well done song the question is did did she need that no but he sure thought she deserved it this is the kind of service that we do when we have found something that our heart adores. <laughs> if Finally, I've found something of such beauty and intrinsic worth that I want to arrange all my life around. I want to make art for, I want to make music for, I want to dress myself up for because that thing is beautiful and, and it may not need anything, but it sure does deserve a lot. That's the kind of serve here. And if I, if I ask the question again, okay, what could possibly interest you, not just for the rest of your life, but for all eternity, whatever that object of your adoration and, and, and worship and, and whatever the, the source of what you believe to be the beauty and meaning, I mean, it has to be so boundless that, that your heart can never get enough of it. And that's why I say our highest purpose is serving God in this way. That is our highest purpose. That's what we're created for. And, and the other thing that we need to note here is that everybody does this to something. Everybody is finding something in their life that they believe is so beautiful, has such intrinsic worth, that it's worth arranging your life around and settling your identity into. Everybody has, tends to do this with, any, with everything. Whatever you find, whatever you, th- you think you have found that will satisfy you, that will interest you, that, that, that there is intrinsic worth in, it's going to be something you tend to begin arranging yourself around. And it could be anything. I mean, it could be in your identity as a mom, for example. My being a mother, or maybe, shall we say more specifically, my children's approval of me, that's worth arranging myself around. Or maybe it could be your identity as a Maybe it's in your career or your success in your career. That's, that is so tantalizing to me. It seems to have such worth that I will arrange my life around, I will sacrifice to because I adore it and I will serve it in that way. It could be anything. It could be your career. Your, it could be your reputation. It could even be being well thought of in this church of having people believe you to be a pious, uh, upright, good Christian man or woman. Uh, it could be money. It could be sex. It could be reputation. It could be anything that we think there is such worth in that that I'm going to arrange my, my life. Everybody does this. Everybody, ser- everybody serves something. But according to this passage and according to the testimony of all Scripture, there is only one thing that has such boundless worth and incomparable beauty that the human soul can arrange everything around and serve such that you never become bored of it, it, it never loses its, its, its appeal, it's boundless. Why? Only, only an eternal God can fill that void in the heart of a human being. But everybody tries to fill it in some way. Now, if this, uh, if you're thinking, let me just... Um, Make this point here. If you're thinking, I can't really, I don't really know that I have anything like that in my life, that I, I've really found like I'm ranging my whole life around. It may not be one single thing, it may be a variety of things, but you can begin to tell by asking yourself what tends to make me really angry, what tends to make me really anxious, and what tends to make, make me really depressed. I'm not talking about clinical depression, I'm not talking about medical condition, I'm sort of, I'm talking about the things that sort of just like devastate you. Why? When, when whatever that object of your adoration is, whenever it's threatened in some way, that triggers anger because you value it so much. Uh, Whenever you think you've lost it, you'll feel depressed. Whenever you're afraid you will lose it, you feel anxious. So your anger, anxiety, and depression can be, can be metrics of what you are putting in that inner sanctum of your heart that says this is worth living for. This is worth serving. And everybody does this. Now, if it is God, if God is to be the one that we serve, we should think about what demands that places on us. Because everything pla- everything you choose to serve is going to place certain demands on us. And we see this in our text. So that we might serve Him without fear. I'll deal with that in just a second. In holiness and righteousness. If you're going to make... Let, let's say you're, you're you're convinced that there is nothing else that can sustain the full weight of your identity and your pursuit of adoration except for God. Well, let's say so you're convinced of that. Okay, you're asking, then what is it going to take? What's that, What will this mean for me? Well, here it says holiness and righteousness. Now, these two words uh, are, are very important. One refers to our vertical relationship with God and the other to our hor- uh, yeah, horizontal relationship with other people. So holiness means you've got to make God... Only God, the, the, this, the uniqueness of God, the focus of your adoration. And because of that, then, you're going to treat other people right, too. So love God and others, holiness and righteousness. That, that's what you're required to do if you're going to, make, if you're going to serve God. But this, this brings up a little problem here. Because if you know this to be what it takes to serve God, how can you ever serve Him? Won't there always be a kind of fear in your mind, am I doing enough? Have I chosen the right thing to serve? This is why, and this is, I'm transitioning to the second point, and that is the, the greatest problem. This is why so many people serve God, but they do it with fear. And I'm not talking about the godly sort of reverence. I'm talking about a, a, kind of, a kind of, uh-oh, have I done enough? Have I chosen the right object of adoration? Is this really the right path? So, so what, what Zechariah is saying here is God has come to show us that our highest purpose is to serve Him. But the problem is when we look at what it takes to serve God that is holiness and righteousness, how, how does it not cause us to fear? So, so we've got to be able to f- serve God Without fear, because serving God with fear isn't serving Him at all. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take some time with the second point, uh, uh, less time with the second point, but I do want to talk about the problem. Our greatest problem, that's that's alluded to here in this idea of fear, and it's it's given explicitly in verse 77 when it says, "Forgiveness of their sins." Here is our biggest problem and the biggest obstacle to serving God as we should. It is this, our sins. He refers to it as the hand of our enemies in verse 74. Now, when Zechariah is saying that God would deliver us from the hand of our enemies... I'm going back into the context of his day. Most of the Jews that heard this part of the song would have automatically assumed, when he talked with the hand of our enemies, they'd assume, oh, he's talking about the Romans. Because right now, the Romans were the ones that had Israel and, and the Jews under their domination. And they felt like they were kind of exiles in their own land. Or they might have thought, well, just rewind from the Romans, go to the, before that was the Persians, before that was... Uh, the Babylonians, and and before that was the Assyrians, and before that were the Egyptians. It seems like we've always been subjugated by our enemies, and so when you hear this word that we might be delivered from the hand of our enemies, many would have automatically assumed, oh, those are our, our political enemies, our military enemies. But any Jew who knew the Old Testament, his scriptures really well, would have also realized that these enemies were a metaphor and the result of a deeper enemy. That is, there was another hand Yes, there might have been a hand that was clutching their bodies or their finances or their political structures, but there was a deeper hand that had its grip right in the middle of their heart, and that is called sin. You see, the reason why throughout Israel's history they were dragged into captivity was because they had sought to serve other things. They had taken as the very center and object of their adoration and love something other than God. My friend, your greatest enemy is not anything political. It's not anything financial. It's not, your greatest enemy is not the situation you're in with your family right now. Your greatest enemy should be. That's your greatest enemy. And the word for that is sin. A lot of people don't like to use that word. Unless we use that word, we can't understand the baffling human condition. Why is it that we constantly pursue things to our own self-destruction? The answer the Bible gives is the clearest and most concise and most plausible explanation, and that is each one of us has turned away from our Creator. We've sought delight in other things. We've thought that if we serve these things, we can be the master, when in fact, in serving them, they have mastered us. That's sin and that happens. These things that I listed a few moments ago, your reputation, your identity as a, in your career, or as a mother, or as a father, popularity, sex, money, whatever it is, if you serve those things, they become your enemy, not your friend. When you put those things at the center of your life, what do they end up doing? They end up crushing you. And the, the, the irony is that we go, we go to back to, again and again, to the very thing that's destroying us to get us help it's it's like an addiction it's like a drug we 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 think that it's going to help us overcome the problem in fact it is the problem and what what Zechariah is pointing out here is this that our greatest problem is revealed to be our sin but and this leads us to our third point this also points us to our only solution you see if, if God's sending Jesus as our Savior reveals to us that our highest purpose is serving God, but that our greatest problem is that we serve other things, it also points to the only solution to our sin. And that is seen in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to people in the forgiveness of their sin. See, often when people are told that they're sinners, they either have one of two reactions. They'll either say, no, I'm not. Or they'll say, I know I am, but I'm trying to do better. See, neither of those two reactions, responses, will get you what's being offered here, and that is forgiveness of sin. You see, remember I told you at the beginning of the sermon that that little baby depicted in the manger scene, that it's Something to be wondered at that we even know his name. Because the way that he died was intended to crush out his memory. Why did he die that way? See, when Jesus was hanging on a cross, suspended by these metal spikes into wood, it was not just that he was experiencing physical torment, although he was, of course. It's that he was standing in our place as sinners. He was being treated as if he had done everything wrong in the world when, he, in fact, he had done nothing. This is why when Jesus hung there on the cross, he looked down at the people, even the people that were crucifying him, and said, Father, forgive them. The reason why Jesus came to this earth is to procure forgiveness for your sins if you're humble enough to admit you have them. That's why Jesus came. That's why He died. That's why He rose again, to be your Savior. That's what Christmas is all about. And that's why God deserves the very best words we could offer Him. Because it comes to us as our Savior. This is why Jesus came. He he came to save you, my friend. And maybe you're here this morning, all this talk about sin and the purpose of life and all these things. You're like, "What, what, what is this all about? Can you freely admit that what you suspect about yourself is true and that is that you are more flawed than you ever imagined, then can I proclaim to you this good news that you're also more loved than you ever dare hope because Jesus proved God's love for you by pouring out his own life for you on the cross. That's good news. That's the gospel to which you must respond if you never have, to which all of us must respond on a daily basis. Trust in him. Trust in Jesus Christ. Make faith and repentance the daily rhythm of your life. And that's the good news, the gospel. The solution to the problem is the forgiveness of sin. And the greatest question you could ask yourself this morning at this Christmas time is this, am I trusting in Jesus? But if you are, I have some more questions for you too. Remember we said earlier That Jesus coming, God sending Jesus, reveals that our highest purpose is serving Him. May I ask you this question? Are you serving God without fear? Are you serving Him without fear? You know, I referred to Estelle Koenig earlier in the service. I was just thinking about the fact that up to her very last days, she served God without fear. I asked her uh, a few weeks ago when she knew she was going to pass away pretty soon. I said, Estelle, are you ready to die? And she said, I am. I'm ready to meet my Lord. And then when Krista and I visited her on a Saturday, I think it was was two Saturdays ago or so, you know, the lady's dying. And you know what she wasn't talking about? She wasn't talking about how what a bummer it was to be in the condition she was. She wasn't talking about how much pain she was in. She was talking about other people in this church that need things, that she's burdened for. She's praying for them. She's reminding me as a pastor about their needs. What is she doing? She has found something, she found something of such value, of such worth, of such beauty, that was worth serving and living for. My friend, have you found that? Have you found something that, that is not just worth living for in health, but also in illness, not just in good times but in bad times, not just when everything is going your way, but when everything is going against your way. Not just when you, your, your, your body works well, but when you get that diagnosis that you never wanted to hear, Yes, God is worth serving in those times too. What about those of you who retired? Oh, you've come to the point in your life where you don't have to. Go in and clock in every single day to make a buck and to make ends meet. You've, you've saved up well. You've stewarded your finances well. Okay, what are you gonna do with your life? Are you gonna serve the Lord? Are you gonna continue the pattern of living for Him? Why? Not because God needs anything, but because He deserves everything? Are you gonna steward your retirement to the glory of God? What about those of you who are in the middle of, of life? You're in the rat race, you're just trying to make ends meet you can serve God where you are too. By raising your children to love God with all their hearts, by modeling for them what it means to, to live and serve God, not with fear, not with a sense of begrudging duty. Well, kids, this is what we've got to do because this is simply the right thing. But is there a delight that just glimmers from the very center of your being when you talk about God, when you pray to God with your kids? What about those of you who are unmarried, young, you have opportunities that other people don't, are you serving God with them because you found something of such matchless delight it's worth serving? Those of you who are teenagers, you're at home, children, yes, you can serve God too. God deserves the very best that we have because he has given his very best. He gave us his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. And that's the reason for the Benedictus, the song of blessing. Would you bow your heads? As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, this is a moment we can carefully reflect on what God is showing us. You know, when, when the word of God is opened, when there's a preaching service like this, I always believe that God's going to do something I I couldn't have anticipated. I always believe God's going to do something I didn't expect. Why? Because the word of God is powerful. And it could be that God did something, bam, right in the middle of your heart you weren't expecting. He's wakened something up in you. Don't ignore that. That that sense that God is speaking to you is not just your imagination. It's not just, it's not just a trick of the environment. This is the power of God's word slicing right into the core of your being and telling you, you need this. You need to put your trust in Jesus Christ or you need to take whatever, whatever thing you've put at the center of your life and and replace it with, with the, only, the only being that can satisfy. Maybe you made an idol out of something else. Maybe one of the things I mentioned, maybe not. Maybe you realize, I've been wasting my time. I've been squandering my retirement. I've been squandering my singleness. I've been squandering my opportunities with my children. Oh, would you pour that out to God? He wants to hear it, and He can strengthen you so that you can serve Him without fear. Our Father, I pray that You would continue to do this work in our heart. May this Christmas season, our hearts and minds be filled with the best thoughts and words about you that possibly can be, because you deserve it all. And I pray that anybody in in the hearing of my voice that has been stirred in their hearts by their need to trust in Christ as their Savior, I pray that they they would do that, that any decision that must be made in response to your word would be made. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.